All right, if you would, I know we've been in the habit of turning to the book of Ephesians, but this morning I'd like for you to turn to Psalm 63. Psalm 63, we are going to return to um, our series in Ephesians, uh, but I wanted to draw our attention to this particular psalm, uh, not only this Sunday, but also next Sunday. Uh, This particular psalm is a psalm that illustrates to us uh, some great truths of the comparisons between David and the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we know that David is a type or a picture of Christ. And I want us to look at this this morning, Psalm 63. And this morning, our subject or our title today is simply a thirsting soul. A thirsting soul. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Writes these words, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee, my soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live, I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with morrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee, thy right hand upholdeth me. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword, they shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Every one that sweareth by him shall glory, but the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. As I mentioned to you, we'll return to our study in Ephesians, but this morning as we think about that expression, a thirsting soul, David writes those words in the context of he says, My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Psalm 63 is a psalm that has often been referred to as a psalm that was sung among many of the early Christians. As you know, many of the psalms were actually songs. They were songs that were sung. As a matter of fact, there are churches today who they only sing the psalms. Uh, They don't sing out of a hymn book. It looks like a hymn book, but they are the psalms sometimes set to music. Sometimes there's no music. They just sing it in an a cappella fashion. But this particular psalm, Psalm 63, was known to be a psalm that was sung every day. Imagine having Psalm 63 on your lips every single day of your life. Not just privately, but it was sung publicly every day of your life. Psalm 63 was sung by believers. It was said to have been sung all year long. It didn't cease. It was a continual singing all year long. David, of course, we know about David. He had been a king in Israel. And yet, as a king of Israel in Psalm 63, we find David fleeing across the Jordan River to escape 
from most believe from his own son, Absalom. He had to escape from his own son. And here is one of the greatest assurances that we get. Here is one of God's people who he declared to be a man after his own heart. And yet we find David on the run, being driven into the wilderness, being driven into a dry and thirsty land. This is the king. This is King David. This is the man who seemingly would be the least expected to have to be driven from an earthly kingdom or an earthly throne. Oftentimes we see pictures in someone's house and we see pictures of a family. We see pictures of maybe a husband and a wife, a father and a mother, and we see children and they're all in this picture together. And it's, they're all smiles and it's this picture of uh, what life should be. Yet here we have, most likely, David's own son, Absalom, giving the exact opposite picture of what it really ought to be. Absalom doesn't just want to hurt his father, he wants to kill his father, David. He wants the throne. He wants to assume the throne. He wants it for himself. Imagine this about the, the David's, David's thoughts. He still had a love for his son. He still had thoughts towards this son, Absalom, of course, but we also realize that Absalom had nothing but bad intentions for him. Of course, every parent knows, every parent here knows that there are times of sorrow, there are times of tears, and there are times of smiles, there are times of happiness. But what happens over the years is every individual, every human being begins to feel the pressures of time, right? Time, sometimes the seasons are good, sometimes the seasons are bad, sometimes we're not even sure what season we're in. And yet we see in this picture that we know that living here in this world as living people, we all must suffer times of mourning, we all must also suffer. But there are also times of laughter, there are times that we enjoy, we rejoice but folks, we have to get in our mind's eye that no matter how long we live in this life, there are going to be days, there's going to be times when we mourn and there's going to be times when we rejoice. Every believer knows this to be true. The morning times are not the end of times. The morning times are part of our walk with Christ. The morning times are just, if not more instructive than the times of rejoicing. Here's David being driven into a dry and thirsty land, not just spiritually, but being driven physically. My soul, he says, thirsteth for thee. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh longs for thee, David says. But we should not wonder why sometimes we as the children of God sometimes find ourselves in times of despair. We've almost gotten the idea that if a Christian has a down moment, that something's wrong with their faith. And nothing could be further from the truth. A down moment in Christian life, Christian living, doesn't mean that there's something wrong with your faith. It's the ebbs and flows and seasons of life. And God uses those times, even when we're down, to try us, to show us who He is. 
But you'll notice here that as we read, David as a type of Christ, this cannot be separated. We cannot separate the fact that David himself was also referred to as a type of Christ. I would encourage you that when you read the Psalms, do not read the Psalms without Christ in them. Do not read the Psalms without recognizing the pictures and the types of Christ that are seen, even though you will not see the name Jesus and you won't see Jesus Christ, but Christ is all over the Psalms. Psalm 63 is not just a psalm about David being driven into the wilderness. David is a picture of Jesus Christ and even his own being driven into the wilderness. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, he took on that robe of human flesh. He became man. He thirsted and he was apart from his father. You never, never lose sight of the reality that David was, separated. David was separated from his family and Jesus Christ was separated from his father. Oftentimes, it is very difficult to tell when we're reading the Psalms. It's often very difficult to see and to tell which one is actually the object of the psalm. We see oftentimes in the Psalms that we can hardly tell when it's David or when it's Jesus or is it both of them. Often we lose sight of David altogether. Sometimes we read the Psalms and if we see Christ in the Psalms, we lose sight of David altogether and we say, that's got to be Christ. An example is Psalm 22, which is one of the Messianic Psalms that clearly it talks about, it shows us about the crucifixion and some of the things that Jesus was talking about. Some of the Psalms saying not a single bone in his body was broken. We know that's a reference to, to Jesus. But there are also these times when we lose sight of David. And we're not even certain David is there. And other times it seems to be that it's only David mentioned and Christ is not there. I would submit to you today, this was intentional by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is not, this is not error. This is not contradiction. This is the way the Holy Spirit penned the Word of God. There are times when we read and there are moments that we are supposed to look at the Scriptures and understand this is not just about David's life. Although our psalm today clearly demonstrates a parallel between David's life and Jesus Christ's life. For us as believers in this day and age, there is this very mysterious union between ourselves and Christ. And what I mean by that is almost everything we read, and I, 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 think, this, I think you'll agree with this statement, almost everything we read in Scripture we feel and know this connection with Christ. We seem to see Him on every page. We seem to see Him in every passage. That is not by accident, friends. That's not something that's just random. We are feeling that union with Christ through the Spirit. And yet, as we read and we see things that are said concerning David, things that are said concerning Christ, they are so intertwined that we cannot separate the union between David and Christ. David is that type or that picture of Christ. So we cannot separate those two. Nor can you and I separate ourselves from the union of Christ. When I read the Psalms, I'm reading with the union in Christ in mind. The Psalms just become words. They just become, they just become empty words if I don't know my union with Christ. So I think there's a great intention that we need to see Christ in the Psalms. 
In this psalm, we are sure that we see references to Christ. We're sure that we see references to David. But we also know that there are passages of Scripture that leave us wondering who was the psalmist talking about. For example, in Psalm 1610, David wrote these words, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy at thy right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. We realize the corruption that sin brings. We realize that corruption of sin brings death. We realize that David, just like you and I, was a sinner. He was in need of a Savior. He was in need of Christ. And yet, as we read about David, we cannot separate the reality of David and Christ Himself. We know some things about David that are similar to Christ. David was of the tribe of Judah. There were many wilderness adventures in David's life. David was not just driven to the wilderness once. David was driven to many wilderness times. We might read about the wilderness of Ziph. We may read about the wilderness of En Gedi. We may read about the wilderness of Paran. We might read about the wilderness of most commentators believe that in Psalm 63, David was in the wilderness of Judah. Seems as if David may have written this psalm Maybe as he had exited Jerusalem, and maybe he now finds himself alone. He's separated from the very things that connected him with God. Divine institutions. Worship in the temple. Either he was driven out by Absalom, his own son. Possibly he was driven out by Saul. We know that there were more than one occasion that David was driven out of his kingdom, out of the throne, into the wilderness. Although I would take the position that this is most likely a time when he is being driven out, as I've already stated, by the rebellion of Absalom. But I would also say that that's very illustrative of Christ being driven into the wilderness. It's very illustrative of David being driven to wilderness. But what is David longing for more than anything in the world? He's in a physical wilderness. It's dry and it's thirsty. His main request is not water. His main request is the presence of God. He doesn't say, my flesh longs for water. He says, my flesh longs for thee. David wanted more than anything that restored fellowship with God. You see, those times of being driven to the wilderness are those moments in which David felt, actual felt the separation between himself and God. Now, why is that so important? Because most worship in David's day, the presence of God was identified with the worship in a sanctuary. It was identified in a temple. What David is expressing is he is expressing that his worship of God is not to be contained to the temple, but it is supposed to be incessant worship, just like this psalm. I'm supposed to sing this psalm every day of my life. You see, what David wanted more than anything was fellowship with the Father. What David was most thirsty for was not for water, but for fellowship with God. His faith, although times David had times when his faith seemed to fail, 
His faith was immovable. David, even in this psalm, gives us a picture of what's going to happen to the wicked. We'll deal with this next week. He says in verse 9, but those that speak my, seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. In this case, if this is Absalom, his own son, he said those that are seeking my death will go into the lower parts of the earth. What a thing for David to say. What did he know about God? He knew that ultimately God was in control and that God ultimately would be exalted. This exaltation expresses the triumph not only for David and his God, but this also describes the triumph that Christ had over hell, death, and the grave, and sin. Ultimately, what did humanity want to do with Jesus Christ? They wanted him dead. They wanted him forever gone. And they thought by killing him, they thought they had accomplished that, but all they had done is fulfilled the will of God and actually helped show the redemption of Jesus Christ. You see the pictures running together of Christ and David. It's so easily to see. This whole psalm, without doing any harm to this scripture, can be truly applied to the circumstances of Christ while he lived here in the flesh. We say, how does longing for God illustrate the longings of Christ in the flesh? Because you realize we see pictures of Jesus Christ longing to be with his Father. We see Him referencing my Father. Jesus Christ in His humanity longed for the presence of the Father. And that great mystery of the Trinity, we could discuss it, we could talk about it, and we'd have opinions about it, but do never lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ in the flesh desired fellowship with the Father. It can't be doubted, of course, also that David... It says, when he was in the wilderness. That's what a lot of the headings say in your Bibles. You may not have that. But David was in the wilderness. We know that those examples did take place. We know that there were times when he had been banished from Judah. He had been deprived of the very use of the ordinances of God. He was driven from the temple. He knew what it was to experience loss. And yet his great desire was to have them return to him. These words that David expresses are very expressive of what Christ himself was exhibiting. Notice what David says, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. You realize when Jesus Christ came as the Messiah, when he lived in this world, to him, I hope you see this, this world was nothing more than a barren wilderness. Jesus did not teach to place your hope in anything that this world offered. Not a single thing. So to someone whose hope is not in this world, is not going to look at things and say, my hope is in that, my hope is in that, my hope is in that. No, to Jesus, this whole world is a barren wilderness. In His humanity, He was separated from His Father. In His humanity, He was separated from the things that He had known since the beginning of the world. Every creature in this world, everything in it, to Christ, was empty. David is illustrating that truth by saying, 
pure water, just water for my physical needs would be empty compared to the loss I'm feeling of your presence. To me, that's very, that's very profound. And it's, very, it's, a, it's a very teachable thing that David would look at this and he, he's not satisfied with anything the wilderness can give. He's not even satisfied with the water the wilderness could provide. Jesus Christ, when he views the world and, he, and his humanity, he saw this barren wilderness. He sees a world that is under the curse. Folks, I think we lose sight of this almost every day, that this world is under the curse of God. And somehow we've, we've managed to get ourselves to believe that if it could just get a little bit better, my life would be more manageable here. No, what God is after is he wants you to thirst after him more than anything this empty world can give you. You are not going to be satisfied with anything this world gives you. I don't care how much of it you get, you're not going to be satisfied with it. While Jesus was in the world, think about this. While Jesus was in the world, in his, even in his humanity, he was the only true holiness. The only thing that's truly holy was Jesus Christ himself. The tabernacle wasn't holy. The temple wasn't holy in of itself. They were items in those things to point us to him. But he was the only picture, not just a picture of holiness, but holiness itself. He was righteousness in its perfection. He was purity in its highest purity. He was pure in his love to God. He was pure in his faith to God. He was pure in his seeking of God. He was pure in his worshiping God, his zeal for God, his desires for God, his delight in God. Even when he thirsted and he hungered after God, Jesus himself was perfect. Now we know it's David writing these words, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. Very similar to what Mark tells us about Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. says concerning Jesus in the morning, Rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and prayed. You realize that Jesus Christ prayed. The world, the world doesn't understand that. If your Jesus is a God, why does he have to pray? Yet Mark makes an intentional note of that. That he prayed unto his Father. In this very access to God, Jesus is showing the perfect picture of worship and He's showing us what communion really looks like. Jesus, by praying, shows us He understood the relationship between Himself and the Father and the Spirit. Nothing that was happening in Jesus' earthly life was more important than the fellowship He had with His Father. You understand something today. His relationship with his father was more important than you. Now that raises some eyebrows, doesn't it? Because we begin to think that everything Jesus Christ did was about you. No, it was about the father. And folks, I'm convinced until we get the true view of who God is, that God is not doing all these things for your benefit, but he's doing this according to the covenant promises that have been made before the foundation of the world. He's acting in accordance with what's been promised. And God, who cannot lie, is keeping those promises. 
When Jesus was praying unto His Father, He was praying with the covenant in mind. He was praying with the relation to His Father in mind. The greatest sense of fellowship we have with our Father is based upon the promises that He has made. When David himself begins to say things like, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I've seen thee in the sanctuary, he's speaking from experience. He says, there was a time in that sanctuary, the presence of God was so real, I saw your power, I saw your glory. He's not talking about some hypothetical thing. And I would say to us this morning, when is the last time you saw the power and the glory of God? Even in this place. And I'm not talking about emotional foolishness. I'm saying, when's the time, last time you saw God and you thirsted for Him more than anything? That even if you were thirsty to almost the point of physical death, you'd say, I would rather have Jesus, I would rather have God in His presence than even physical water. You see, David didn't say my body is thirsty primarily. He said my soul is thirsty. Without all doubt, that was David's thought just like it was Jesus. Jesus Himself thirsted for the fellowship with His Father. Yet we cannot say that David did not have the same thoughts. The sanctuary there, or would have been referred to as a tabernacle in David's day, that was the very seat of divine worship. This would not have been the temple that was built by Solomon, but this would have been another temple. And it was the very seat of the public worship. It's where the whole congregation of Israel would come together in the days of Christ's flesh. While Christ was in His human body, there was a temple. And it was in that place, David says, I long to see that glory and that power. In that temple, there's no doubt that the Trinity, the Godhead, even in Jesus' day, was on full display. Christ in His humanity, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. If we were to go around and even look in the Old Testament and consider the tabernacle and the temples, I would, I would highly encourage you, if you've never done a study on the tabernacle and the significance of every item in that tabernacle, I would highly suggest you do that. It is mind-blowing how every item down to the curtain rods pointed to Jesus Christ. Nothing was there just to hold something up. All of it had a meaning. From the Holy of Holies, from the Ark of the Covenant, from the mercy seat, to the cherubim of glory, to the golden pot of manna, to the rod of Aaron, which the Bible tells us it budded and bloomed blossoms. It yielded almonds and was a memorial of the priesthood of Christ as the, or the priesthood of Messiah, which would be Jesus Christ. There were so many symbols, so many memorials of God's power and glory, all based upon His covenant promises. If we just served a God who didn't keep His promises, we would have no reason to hope. Now, in most cases, in the temple, in the tabernacle, only the high priest got to see some of these things. Only the high priest was privy to be able to see some of these pictures or these memorials of the pictures of Christ. But David says, I worship God in that sanctuary. There's no doubt David in his mind's eye sitting in that wilderness must have been thinking about the days when his mind had been opened by the Word, when his mind had been opened by the Spirit. 
when he began to actually understand some of these mysteries. Folks, you realize today anything you understand by, about God that's truth is a gift of God. It's not because the preacher was eloquent. It's not because the preacher was smart. It's because God has given you the ability to understand. It's not the celebrity preacher. It's not the celebrity pastor. It's not the well-spoken man. It's just the Word of God. That's what's opening the eyes and the hearts and minds of people. If a man stands up and reads Scripture to you and never says another word, he's giving you the Word of God. And David, of course, knew what all these things were, these spiritual understandings, yet we know David's life was not perfect. David had fallen in sin. We know David had times of doubt of his faith. But there's no doubt that David's mind must have gone back to those symbols and those memorials in that temple and had Christ, had God on his mind. The temple and the tabernacles were so full of Christ, even David. He says, I can't abide in the wilderness very long. Folks, it ought to, it ought to be almost impossible for us to be without Christ for very long. No one that loves Christ leaves him. You just don't. You don't leave someone you know to be everything he said he would be according to the promises. David had no thoughts right here of leaving God. But he says, you know what? I'm in the middle of this wilderness. Here's what my thought is. My soul longs for you. Imagine being so full of the promises of God and so full of the promises of Christ. David knew that these promises, he could not bear being away from God for too long. Of course, Christ himself oftentimes would refer to the Father and refer to the Father to, to even take this cup from me. And all of these things, it was not about him wanting out of the cross. What Jesus expressed more than anything was fellowship with his Father. Imagine trying to find satisfaction in some wilderness. Imagine trying to find something that can replace God and never being able to find it. Folks, I've watched and I've watched and I've watched. I've watched people over the years try to find satisfaction in this world. I have never found one that found it. I never, I've never seen him find it. David begins his worship of God by reminding himself, and I think God, of all the attributes of God. Verse 3, because thy loving kindness is better than life. Can you actually say that this morning? God's loving kindness is better than physical life. The fact that God has demonstrated his love towards me, David says, he doesn't say it hypothetically, he says, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. I'm going to praise you even in this wilderness. Even though I'm begging and I'm longing to be with you. Listen, we know, I want you to think about this, we know the love of Christ if we're believers today. But do you know what Jesus Christ knows about the Father's love? 
His knowledge of God's love, the Father, far surpasses ours. So as much as you know that Christ loves you and God loves you, Christ knows the love of the Father in a way that none of us, none of us know. <laughs> that, that is jarring. It's jarring not because Jesus knows more, but it's jarring because we think we know so much. We think we know about the love of God and yet Christ understands more. We think what we know what it is to be thirsty and hungry, yet Jesus Christ in His humanity, He felt and knew those things as well. But I think the great lesson that Christ teaches us is that even though He's God and He was in the flesh, He longed for the fellowship with the Father because He knew the Father's love for Him. I'm not asking you to long for the fellowship of Christ and the fellowship of God just as your daily devotion. I'm asking you, do you really long for that because you know the love of Christ truly? Because to know the love of Christ is to never even leave the love of Christ. David in these verses is showing us, even as Christ shows us, that this communion that David is talking about would have to include communion with the Godhead. The things David is saying has to include God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit because he's talking about attributes that come through each one of those three persons. It's interesting to know that David's knowledge leads him to an enjoyment of it. Folks, if your knowledge of God leads you to just be an old curmudgeon about it, there's something wrong with your walk. And if all you are is just an old, salty doctrinarian, and you're just all about that, and you don't enjoy Christian life at all, and you're, just, you're down about everything, you've got to ask yourself the question, do you really know the love of Christ? Nobody wants to sit in a room and just listen to all the doctrinal things. Yes, they're important, but remember, your doctrine ought to lead you to show a life that demonstrates the love of Christ in your life. I wouldn't buy what some Christians are selling. I'm like, what is that? You're miserable people. If you want me to have anything to do with this God that you say loves you, then why do you act that way? If your God loves you so much, why do you always seem to be like the most depressing people in the world to be around? And folks, this is becoming more and more true. I'm seeing people who aren't even believers enjoying a life better than we are. And I'm saying, what has gone wrong? Well, we're in a wilderness. Sure we are. So while you're in the wilderness, why don't you long and thirst after God? Maybe in the last year of wilderness, that's what we should have been doing, is longing after God instead of longing after physical satisfaction of what certain things are going to do for us. I can't worship God rightly the way we things are now. Really? Is that all it takes for us? Just a few restrictions to keep us from the worship of God? We haven't even been driven to a real wilderness. This is just one big inconvenience. And it's painful. But this should not be driving. Our soul should say, listen, yes, I am in a bad thing, but I want your presence more than anything else in this world. David says, because thy loving kindness is better than life. 
These words are spoken well by David. They're the language and the confession, I think, of every saint. The loving kindness of God, folks, we don't have, we cannot get our mind around this. The loving kindness of God is above and beyond all things. It's the very spring in which God comes forth. It's, it's, the, it's the covenant of grace. The grace that originated by Christ Himself. Listen, when a person is brought to know and to believe the love which God has for them, we ought to treat that as better than life. Listen, the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us when the Holy Spirit sheds the love of Christ abroad in our hearts, that's supposed to lead us to a place of prayer and praise. We consider Him greater We consider him greater than our need. He says, thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise thee. Verse 4, thus will I bless thee while I live. Now, if you think for a minute that David had any idea that he would get out of this wilderness, you're fooling yourself. David doesn't know if he's coming from this back from this wilderness or not. David doesn't have a a, a pre-script of what God's about to do. Folks, we, we as believers, from a, from a knowledge of God standpoint, and just hear me out, we have it so easy. Sadly, you don't even have to dig the Scriptures much yourself anymore because you can click on something and just have someone else do it for you. And by the way, that should not be your communion with God. Your doctrine should not be based upon what some so-and-so pastor said on some page. It should actually be your own communion and your own experiences with God. I use commentaries. I use a lot of helps. But I can tell you right now, you can get to the point where all you're doing is just you're communing with a commentator and you're not communing with God. It becomes intellectual. It becomes nothing more than put some material, some facts together... Put it all in order and express it. But the only way you can truly express it is by experiencing truly God for yourself. Are there helps? Absolutely. Is it better than digging in the Word of God for yourself? No, it's not. But David had this incessant worship. He says, I will lift up my hands in thy name. I know that scares Reformed Baptists badly. We wouldn't dare lift up our hands because that would be a sign of emotion. And I'm not telling you to lift your hands. I'm just telling you, listen, you can get so set in your ways that you just think this is the way it's supposed to be. Who told you that? Who told you that? I've seen, I've seen churches. It's like, it's like looking out at a morgue. And I'm like, this is the love of Christ. This is what we get. Take it or leave it. Man, we get more excited about things, things that don't matter. Again, I'm not about emotionalism. I'm just telling you, David says, this is, this is my response. Even if the lifting up your, up your hands is in spirit and in heart only, that's totally fine. I think David meant actual hands. But notice what David, he says, I lift up my hands in thy name. David in the whole of his life, desired obedience to God and worship of Him. But I also think that this clearly shows us the heart of Jesus Christ even in His humanity. 
Jesus Christ in the scope of life was here for a very limited, to say the least, time. 33 some years, right? The entire time he was here, he blessed the Father continually. And you say, well, he's God, so he had to. That's showing a very shallow knowledge of who God is, if that's our response. If the response is he had to, you're still missing it. Jesus himself blessed the Father. Jesus himself prayed unto the Father. The way in which Jesus did this, he he was always submissive to the Father's will. That's what the idea is of lifting up my hands in thy name. It's a sign of also subjection and submission. That in my worship, God, it will always be pure. It will be right before you. But then verse 5, he says, My soul shall be satisfied as with morrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. Christ's faith never changed. Christ's faith never changed. Christ's soul was perfectly delighted and truly satisfied. And that lifting up of hands is the illustration of, I am completely satisfied in God. The new mantra that we hear often, and I've heard it recently in the last few days, and I have no problem with it. You know, we hear it, Christ alone, Christ is enough. It sounds like something we should put on a bumper sticker. It sounds like something we should hang on our wall. But do you realize David wasn't talking about bumper sticker Christianity? He was talking about this is all of my sufficiency. That actually is enough. You see, I think we've, we've connected a little bit of satisfaction in the wilderness, in the world. And we've connected that and we've connected Christ and then we say, yeah, Christ is enough. But what if all those other things were gone? Here's King David in the middle of the wilderness. Here's King Jesus Christ himself in the wilderness of this world. And yet his mind was never fully satisfied with anything in this world. He had real communion with the Father. That's what this statement that even David is making, as with morrow and fatness and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. It's expressive of the very sweetness that Christ himself found by communion with the Father. Again, these are, these are mysterious things. Why is Jesus Christ the Son praying to the Father? And even further, why is He worshiping Him? Yet David knew what these things were. My soul shall be satisfied. And then David speaks something very, very key. When I remember Thee upon my bed. And meditate on thee in the night watches. Now remember this. The mind of Christ was always in perfect union with the Father. They were never at odds. There's so, there's so many things I, I won't say. There's so many things you could say about this union. Christ and the Father were never in disagreement. There was never a back and forth between, okay, what happens now? 
There was always perfect union. It was beyond a minds being able to even conceive this. It was fully complete. If we truly could engage and think upon all the things we think upon about God, if we could truly have the actual real view of who God is, if we actually contemplate upon what God, who God has said He is instead of what someone has told us that God is, how would it change our worship of Him? Like I said, I've, been, I've wondered this for a long time. Why do we do the things we do? Why do we worship God? How do we what, Who determines what's right and what's wrong? The worship of God ought to be based on Scripture. And we know that to worship God, we must worship Him in what? Spirit and truth. Not in ritual and pomp and circumstance. But if God, the Son, His mind was always in perfect union with the Father, imagine what our minds would be engaged in. Jesus Christ always praised the Father. He always praised God. David had moments, of course, when David did what he wasn't supposed to do. David always gets, we always bring up the sin of Bathsheba, and we use that as his scarlet letter, right? But what about his sin in numbering the people when he wasn't supposed to number them? It's a little obscure little thing that nobody really thinks. All he did was counted people. We could sit and say, well... That's not really a big deal. I mean, here's the same with Bathsheba. I can see this. This is really, really bad over here because this just has lots of implications. I mean, he not only committed adultery, but he, he, he had him killed. I mean, this has got to be the picture of, this is the guy that God says, a man after my own heart? And yet he numbers a few people because he numbered them and God didn't tell him to number them. So David was not always in perfect union with God. You understand what I'm saying? He had moments where he didn't contemplate enough on who God was, and because he did that, failed to do that, it kind of led him away from where he should have been. Folks, that's what's wrong with a lot of the things we see in Christianity today. We're not really contemplating on who God is. We're contemplating on who people want God to be. They want the Christian bookstore God. That's what they want. But you're not going to be satisfied with the Christian bookstore God. That God has absolutely nothing for you to find hope in. But now if I meditate and I contemplate on remembering the God I know, which is what David is doing, Jesus Christ himself contemplated upon the works of the Father, and he's in obedience to the Father. When he contemplated those things, he was in perfect union. Imagine if we actually stopped allowing our misconceptions of who we think God is to rule us and actually contemplated and meditated upon who God really is. It's the great problem in churches all over this world is that we're not preaching God, we're preaching about God and we're making God who we want Him to be instead of who He's declared Himself to be. Jesus Christ never did an act of worship that God the Father didn't accept. Now, we see pictures all throughout Scripture of worship that was not accepted. As a matter of fact, we, can, we have an account in, in Luke where the Bible tells us, it said that Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven 
and earth. Our Lord's mind was exercised day and night on doing the Father's will. He continually meditated on the Father. Folks, the open secret right here is is David's showing us where we're supposed to meditate on is not on a thing, but it's on a whom. We meditate on God. And when David meditated on God in the wilderness, he found praise on his lips. My soul shall be satisfied as with morrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee on my bed and meditate on the, in the night watches. Imagine this, that having the mind and the understanding and the will and the affections and the thoughts and our memory and our life and our actions, imagine meditating on those. Jesus Christ never once had his will, his affections, his thoughts, his memory, his life, or his action on anything else but the Father. Now again, are we talking about some kind of a perfect life? No. We can't live a perfect life. Jesus, we learned this morning, Jesus himself did that. The actions of what Christ has done for us are the most precious to the life of a believer It's how that when we we observe the supper today like we did and we sing these hymns and we sing about these truths, listen, we will never be able to fully comprehend and conceive what Jesus apprehended. Jesus was not just some character who blew in and blew out for 33 years. He gave us this picture of who He was, where where His attention was given, Even though we cannot fully conceive and apprehend what Christ apprehended, David shows us that he was comprehending some things that to many seem incomprehensible. It's incomprehensible to your human mind. This is a guarantee. It's incomprehensible to your human mind how Jesus Christ could be 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Now, you can give me a textbook definition of it, but your mind cannot comprehend that. Your mind cannot even truly comprehend the Trinity. And don't give me the example of three forms of water because it doesn't hold water. That's not the Trinity. Three in one, three distinct persons, one God. Your mind is not comprehending that. And we've got a bunch of textbook scholars that say, I can explain it to you. All I can explain to you is what God has declared himself to be. That's what I know. I know it because he said it. These expressions, David, my soul thirsteth for thee. That was Jesus' main thirst was for the Father. David says, my lips shall praise thee. That was Jesus' words. I will continually praise the Father. David said, my soul shall be satisfied. Jesus Christ was satisfied with not only his his will, but the Father's will. My mouth shall praise thee. Jesus is marked by praising the Father. All these things lead us to this truth. Jesus Christ in the flesh, being a man and God at the same time, yet still being the Son of the living God. You see, it was the life of God manifested in the flesh, that's Christ, 
It's in the life of the God-man who took on our nature and came into this world is where our hope is. Now, you may not understand all the incomprehensible things about that interaction. But you realize David was worshiping a God he had experience with. He was meditating on that truth. Next week, we're going to deal with the second half of this psalm because we're really just getting started. David's going to make an an expression that has been of such comfort to me over the years, and it appears a couple times in Scripture. He says, Because thou hast been my help, therefore, in the shadow of thy wings, will I rejoice. That phrase, in the shadow of his wings, has comforted me more personally than just about anything I've read. Not because it's just everyday wings, but because of who's saying it, what that means. I hope you'll find all of your satisfaction in Christ. And I hope this morning your soul is actually thirsting for God more than anything. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. I believe as a Christian in this world, we always have to keep in mind that this will always be a dry and thirsty land. The new life that God has given us through His grace has been given to us in order for us to continue to rejoice and praise Him even in the midst of this world. If you're waiting for your earthly circumstances to change before you're going to praise God, you're going to be waiting a very, very long time. And even if your circumstances change, you're not going to find satisfaction even in the change of circumstances. You're only going to find satisfaction in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. And Lord, we rejoice this morning, not because of who we are or what we've done or what we contribute, but we rejoice in who you've declared yourself to be. You've revealed yourself to be the God of this universe. You've declared yourself to be sovereign And as your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to this earth and took on that robe of human flesh, taught us so much about the reality of who he is and who we are. And Father, as we consider our life and we consider what we endure and what we see, may we learn these lessons from not only the life of David, but from the life of Christ in the flesh. May our lips be filled with praise. And Lord, if we find ourselves in that time of wilderness, may we truly thirst for you more than anything else, even more than physical water itself. Father, we ask now that you will go with us as we leave this place, and may we truly remember and meditate on these things. For it's in Christ's name and for his sake that I do pray. Amen. All right. Lord bless you. Thank you for being here. We look forward to seeing you on Wednesday evening. Thank you so much.